Hello and welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders, a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive athletes, survivors, and their families who are confronting abuse. This podcast is for parents, athletes, and other survivors who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. On today's show, we discuss women's U.S. soccer and their claim for equal pay. Before we get into the show, a reminder that the contents of this podcast are never a substitute for contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your particular circumstances. Also, nothing I say in this show should constitute or form an attorney-client relationship. If you're looking for past episodes, go to my website at jsaunderslawfirm.com. And while you're there, have a look around. I've put information there that can help answer some of your questions and speak directly to parents and athletes and others. Please don't forget to sign up for the monthly newsletter so that you will be the first to learn about new episodes and updates on laws that deal and can impact you and your family. If anything I say in this show resonates with you or can be help to a family member or a survivor, don't forget to hit that share button. And also, I read your comments and I love five-star reviews. So don't forget to rate and review the show. Women's soccer in the United States has been on an upward incline for decades. Female players have succeeded in battles both on and off the field. For decades, girls have logged in as many playing hours as boys with less recognition and competitive opportunities. And then on July 10, 1999, Brandy Chastain and the United States women's national soccer team captured the hearts of the nation when they beat China in the finals of the Women's World Cup. For the next 20 years, women's soccer increased in support, awareness, and there began to be a real appreciation for the talent exhibited by these female players. The women's soccer team, they include hundreds of titles and victories. They generated millions of dollars in revenue for the U.S. Federation. They have admirers all over the world and a set of devoted fans. The team is successful in on the international stage. They've won four Women's World Cup titles. They've won four Olympic gold medals and eight gold cups. And the women's team has medaled in every World Cup and Olympic tournament in women's soccer from 1999 to 2015. However, in spite of all of these achievements, accolades, awards, women's soccer and the revenue that they generate, their celebrity status, the players have a complaint. And that complaint is echoed by everyday women all over America, that they are failing to receive pay equal to the work that they do in comparison to their male counterparts. Now, I remember in the 1990s when I was fresh out of college and I started my first real job in Washington, D.C., working for a national political campaign committee. The job was exciting and I felt extremely lucky to even be considered for the position. 
I recall that aside from the receptionist and a member of the cleaning staff and the security guard, I was the only African-American worker in that campaign staff when I started. Part of my job there was to attend meetings, build relationships with Capitol Hill staffers. I remember one meeting that I attended with a group of very influential women, much more accomplished than myself. And the focus was on the growing pay inequities between male and female workers. Now, prior to that time, of course, I was in college. I was enjoying myself, the friendships there, the partying, the studying. I had never really focused in or clued in on this whole concept of a pay gap. But while I was keenly familiar with racial discrimination and I understood the concepts of gender bias, it had never occurred to me that a system existed where men were routinely making much more than women for the same job that they were performing. This issue, this very vexing issue, troubling issue of unequal pay has impacted, I later learned and educated myself, impacted generations of women and unfortunately continues today in 2021. So on March 18 of 2018, the women's national soccer team formalized their complaint of not receiving equal play and there were other related claims for discriminatory workplace conditions when they filed a federal lawsuit against the United States Soccer Federation. So the Soccer Federation were the defendants in the case. There were two main complaints. There were other ancillary issues, but the main claims that the women's soccer team were bringing was that the defendants, the Federation, had violated the Equal Protection Act. And also, number two, that the defendants, the Federation, they were in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Although these issues that were presented to the federal court, they had been building for several years. What happened, fast forwarding to May 1st, 2020, there's a U.S. district judge who issued a ruling in the matter that would directly impact the soccer team, the women's soccer case. So, Judge Klosner ruled that the women could not adequately refute or support that they had, that they didn't receive other benefits in their contract negotiations. In essence, the court stated, and this is a quote, that the plaintiffs, so the women, they could not establish that they were paid less than their male player, the male counterparts. The court went on in their analysis that because the women's team had been involved in contract negotiations, that the end result of those contract negotiations resulted in the women players receiving comparable or even better wage terms than the men's team. Now, as to just touching briefly on the second claim, the women also claimed that there was a violation of Title VII. The first claim that I talked about, that was based on allegations of discriminatory compensation and the women being paid less. Now, flat out, the court denied this claim, like I was saying, and found that they failed to show that they had suffered, the women had suffered any adverse employment impact under the law. As to the Title VII claim asserted by the women's soccer, which is based on a discriminatory working conditions, the court ruled partly in favor of the women's soccer team, finding that the women, in fact, did receive 
discriminatory working conditions, such as on the turf versus the grass fields. So as a point of fact here, the women were asserting that they were relegated to play on turf instead of the more natural glass, grass fields. And they also were receiving lower standards of travel conditions. The court ruled partially against the women and in finding that some of the work conditions were not discriminatory. But what happened was that when they talked about the travel, so the Federation responded that the male soccer players were given certain travel accommodations, such as private chartered flights. And this was needed because of their schedule. Now, the women found that to be a violation under Title VII. In fact, the court did rule in favor on with the women on that, finding that the women should have also been given these different travel accommodations. When we talk about the court's ruling, when they talked about the Equal Pay Act, it placed a burden and the female players or the plaintiffs in this case, they had to show that there was an injury under the Equal Pay Act that had been done to them. And that injury couldn't be, they had to show more than just that it was uh, pretextual. The court also found that as to the female soccer players, that they failed to support their uh, part of the unlawful discrimination claim. And for that reason, part of that was dismissed. Just in summary, and to talk about what the, how the court ruled in favor for the women, the court found that as to the claim that I was saying before of the discrimination on the chartered flights, there was evidence that was presented and there was a sufficient genuine issue in dispute and that that claim could go forward. So by way of just understanding the procedure, what was going on between the litigants, the women's soccer team and the defendants, the federation was that they were at the point procedurally in a civil case where motions for summary judgments or requests that certain counts be dismissed. So what was going on is that the court was reviewing these certain counts and was each count either dismissing in part or in full or granting or ruling in favor of one party or the other. So this kind of was a motion phase and at the point of the litigation, just to try to tell you what I'm talking about. This was not a full trial, so to speak. When we talk about the chartered flights, another point that the court brought out the court found that the Federation's explanation that the men's team needed the chartered flights was weak and implausible. The court found that the men's team, and there was also travel funds that were allocated to the men's team, allowed the players to travel in ease and allowed them to rested and better prepared and focused on the match. However, the court said that benefit was not given to the women's team. And the court found that the defendant's rationale for only giving the benefit, this benefit of the chartered flights and travel funds to the male players was not supported by the evidence. So on a whole, the court's ruling was not favorable on a large part to the women's national team. And the majority of the court's findings harmed the women's case and resulted in significant setbacks. But we find that 
the players, the litigants, the female players that were part of this lawsuit, they were not, you know, going to take this quietly. They were very vocal and adamant in the news and in the press about their disappointment, but that they had hopes about this being another way to chip away at the disparity between unequal pay between men and women for the same job, for the same work. And then on a few weeks ago, in March 15, 2020, the women players who were part of this lawsuit, they asked the federal court to approve a settlement. So the parties then, now out of court, have come together, they've reached a settlement, and the female players, the plaintiffs, they asked the court to approve the settlement. And the agreement would, in essence, resolve the women's team, their complaints about the disparities in travel accommodations and working conditions. The agreement would also allow for a higher court to review the judge's dismissal of the discrimination claim under the Equal Pay Act. So by allowing the agreement to come before the court and having the court to approve it and sign off, two things would happen. They would settle the teams, the plaintiffs' assertions that they were not given the proper travel accommodations and working conditions. But then the second thing that this agreement would do is that it would now release and allow for a higher court to review the women's national team claim that there was discrimination or a violation under the Equal Pay Act. And this resolution, it was reported in Law 360, this resolution would benefit all parties and it would allow for a majority of the women's national team's claim to be settled outside of court and that last piece to be reviewed by an appellate court. In news coverage, it's also been reported that official statements from the women's national team, and there were, I should say that there were a total of 66 members in that class action suit. And this is what the quote is that from the women's team, they stated that even though they ran into those obstacles of many of their counts in their complaint being dismissed, that it does not resolve the pay discrimination claim under Title VII or the Equal Pay Act, and they are going to seek further appellate review. So the litigants, they weren't giving up the fight. They were going to continue to stay vocal and follow the remaining claim in a higher court. There's some important points about the agreement that was provided and that the women sought in their claims. And to recap, some of the claims and some of the assertions that the women's team were making that they didn't receive equal or comparable working conditions. So for example, they claimed that there were not an equal number of chartered flights. So they're flying, you know, into different time zones, different countries, and they're not being given the same conditions to arrive rested and prepared. They weren't given a comparable or the same number of hotel rooms or a budget. They weren't given the same amount of staff members, technical and support staff, and they weren't given dedicated physicians similar to the men's team. And they, as I said before, they weren't ensured that their matches 
would be played at top tier venues and mostly on grass. So some of the things, these are some of the things that they were seeking in their final agreement and to be approved because these are some of the things that they were claiming that they weren't allowed to have that the men's team. On March 24, 2021, President Biden signed a proclamation and I was able to, I watched it with some of the women team players who are part of the suit. They were there when President Biden signed a proclamation on racial and gendered factors that go into and exacerbate inequities in pay. And part of that signing, that proclamation was that he urged Congress to pass the Paycheck Fairness Act. So the history of unequal pay, it began decades, way before the women's national team and their claim and their lawsuit in federal court. Women have been for years trying to close this gap and trying to seek for, by whatever means they could, lawsuits, by marches, by movements, by quiet protests, by vocal protests, to close this gap. And we are coming years, decades later, even decades after I have my first job, we're still trying to tackle this issue. Today, women still make about, I think the numbers are around 82 cents for every $1 that a white male worker makes. And that's that number is white women make 82 cents as compared to a dollar that a white male worker would make. Those numbers are drastically lower when we compare what a white male will make to a African-American woman or another woman of color. It's been stated that if we keep it up at this rate, we may, white women at least, will close the pay gap with their white male counterparts by 2059. That outlook is much further into the future for African-American women and other women of color. And just by way of brief update, so President Biden did sign that proclamation for the urging Congress to pass the Paycheck Fairness Act. And then on April 12th, so a few weeks, well, yeah, two weeks from where I'm making this recording, that what happened on April 12th is the California federal judge did sign off on the settlement between the women's national team and the federation. So that will resolve their issues as to unequal travel accommodations and working conditions. And now the appeal can move forward to the appellate court and there'll be review on the pay discrimination claim. So that's an update on that. One statement by the player's spokesperson, Molly Levinson, she said when on April 12th that they were pleased that the court had approved the equal working conditions, the agreement that the players have fought for so many years and hope to achieve. I'm reporting on this because it directly impacts so many areas of sports and it trickles down into competitive youth sports because it gives you an idea and a forecast of what female athletes, other forms, and this is a form of abuse if you think about that you are training just as hard, you're working just as hard, and many times you're accounting, you know, sometimes the abusive behaviors of individuals within the sport, be it coaches, be it non-responsive 
national governing bodies. If you have a complaint, you're not getting a response, you're not getting changes, and you're doing all of this and you're looking out into the future and still today, you can train just as hard. And because of culture, because of broken systems, you will not be equally compensated for all of the time, all of the training, and all of the physical wear and tear to your body that you will not receive a fair compensation to your male counterpart, to your male athletes. And so this is a fight that we need to continue to monitor. I'll keep you updated as to this. And we thank the women's soccer team, those 66 litigants and even other ones that are silently fighting in their areas and their corners of the athletic world to receive pay. We thank them and we know that it impacts all of us. That is all that I have for this show. It's been always a pleasure speaking with you and sharing this time with you. Please reach out to me on Facebook. Don't forget that every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, I go live where we talk about topics such as this. We talk about what actions that survivors can take. And we also talk about other services that I offer to individuals who have been accused of crimes, other areas that the firm works in and areas of interest. So tune in. Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Always a pleasure. Look forward to talking to you soon. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.